Seattle's Morning News. This is Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. If you're in the real estate market, boy, have you seen a huge change. I'm not exactly a savant when it comes to statistics, but looking at the multiple listings report for December in uh, some areas, closed home sales are down over 40%. So let's call in Chief Economist for Windermere Real Estate, Matthew Gardner. Matthew, what's going on? Well, yes, I, I, Dave, uh, I think that it's best described that we ended the year with a whimper rather than a roar. We know the number of homes for sale is certainly significantly higher than we've seen. The number of sales is down. And if depending on how you look at it, we're seeing a, a retraction in pricing. So is the market changing? Well, yeah, I think the market is. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this year plays out. Well, sales in December in uh, King County down yeah. 43%. Sales in Snohomish County down, uh, what, 39%. Yep. Yeah, and in Pierce down 50%. So uh, what are real estate agents doing? Are they doing jigsaw puzzles all day? This sounds catastrophic. <laughs> you know, it depends on how you look at it. Uh, the overall numbers, you're right. I mean, they're down. However, uh, it depends on how you kind of carve it up. We are certainly in a quieter period right now. I think there's a lot of fence sitters who are waiting for either prices to collapse or mortgage rates to drop. And so I really think, and also you have to think about the, the, the winter lull as well, which is fairly normal. However, we're really seeing a reversion from a couple of years, which were, uh, in essence, kind of a, the, the sugar high period that we went through because of the pandemic and because of the Federal Reserve reducing, well, doing what they did, which functioned to reduce mortgage rates so dramatically. Now, the significant thing here uh, is that despite the, the drop of the number of sales, home prices or values have not dropped that much, at least in uh, in King and Snohomish County, down maybe, let's say, 2% in King and uh, less than a percent in Snohomish County. So I guess homeowners don't have to panic that, the, that there's going to be uh, a collapse in the value of their homes. But still, if, you, if, you're, if you're looking to sell, this is a tough time to do it. Well, yes. But again, it's how you pass the numbers. Uh, you're taking the numbers and comparing directly sale prices in December 2022 and December 2021. And yes, you're right. They're down very modestly at a couple of points. But you have to look at the bigger picture. Uh, and in aggregate, if you take the median sale price for the whole of 2022 versus the whole of 2021, well, guess what? In King County, they're up almost 9%, mm. over over 12% in Snohomish County and about 9% in Pierce County. So, uh, again, it all depends on how you look at the numbers. But are we seeing the market soften? Sure. We're seeing list prices drop. We have got sellers that need to sell. They're realizing it's not as buoyant a market as we've become used to. And as list prices drop, by the very nature of it, math says that sale prices have to pull back as well. Now, as an economist, you uh, you also keep track of the general economy. So uh, mm. what do you think now? And I ask you this every time, so I'll ask you again. Um, <laughs> recession, yes or no? And if yes, how deep? I am of the opinion that the uh, answer is yes. A majority of economists are saying that we do expect to see uh, a recession. Now, classically, we can't agree on everything. The, the question now is, when is it going to start? So one school of thought thinks it'll start probably in the second quarter. I think it could be a bit later, maybe the third quarter of next year. So, sorry, this year. Still getting used to the this year part. Anyway, so, yeah, are we going to see um, uh, a contraction? Why do we think that? Again, blame the Federal Reserve. 
Anytime they start to raise interest rates to stay off inflation to, and try and create what they define as a soft landing, as in raising rates enough to slow the economy down but not push us into recession, well, they've been pretty bad at that uh, over the years. And uh, it's really because of that that we do expect to see a, a drop. Now, it's going to be fairly modest. Um, I think we'll probably lose in the country about 1.2, 1.3 million jobs. Not bad if you think about 157 million of us working. So that won't be that bad. The unemployment rate, because the labor market is still so tight, will go up. I'm seeing it peaking, though, about south of 5.5%, probably 5.3%, 5.4%. So again, really not that bad. Certainly nothing like 2007. And thankfully for us here in Seattle, nothing like 2000 either. It'll be similar to the recession we saw in 1990. Okay, well, I was around in 1990, but I admit to you, I do not remember a thing about what the economy was like <laughs> back then. That's your job. So let's see, is there a way to take advantage of this situation? Because we still have a homelessness problem. We still need to build more housing. Uh, one of the problems in, in getting that accomplished is that there's been so much uh, construction activity, so much pressure on the construction business because the economy was booming that, that uh, construction prices were going up, land prices going up. So is this, would this be a good time to try and build some of those affordable housing projects that seem to have been so difficult? I wish I could say yes. Um, uh, and you've known me for, for long enough. I'm a big advocate uh, for the provision of affordable housing. And that is in terms of not low income housing, but workforce housing. Housing for people making 80 to 120% of median income. Now, theoretically, what you're saying is correct. Could it be a good time? Yes, it could. However, land is still very expensive. We're not making any more of it. And because of that, land prices will stay high, quite frankly. But on the construction side, we're still suffering. Certainly, builders are suffering from supply chain issues that haven't cleared themselves away completely. And the fact that, I mean, the thing, material costs. Yes, lumber prices have come down. But think about paint. Paint prices are still up by 45% yes. year over year. So when you think about it in totality, land prices are going to still stay high. Construction costs, yes, lumber's coming down, but steel, aluminum, copper, even PVC pipe, those prices are still very high. And construction labor costs as well. Are still high. We're not getting enough people into the trades. So as much as one would like to think it's a great time to bring on more housing, which we certainly need, uh, builders tend to be building today, and they still are to a degree, to the higher price uh, markets because that's what they need to do to cover their costs, whereas a majority of the demand is actually in the more affordable, in the entry-level markets. And we know we're going to have a lot of demand for that product, quite frankly, for the next decade and a half. question is going to be who can figure out first how to build what a first-time buyer would want to live in and what they could afford to live in. Winterbeer Chief Economist, Matthew Gardner. Matthew, thank you. David, as always, a great pleasure. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. And here he is, our resident historian, Felix Bennell, for Friday's edition of All Over the Map, which is a quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And this week, 
After too long a wait, the much-anticipated ninth installment of our epic 13-part series looking at place name origins of Washington counties, and not just that, but the county seats as well. Exactly. I think this is episode number nine of what will be 13 episodes, and I plan to finish by the end of the decade, as President Kennedy exhorted us to in that rousing speech so long ago. Now, we might not get to all the details here, and those will be online later, but... um, down in the southwest corner of the state is Pacific County, which is named after, of course, you guessed it, the Pacific Ocean, which forms a western boundary. Mm-hmm. And the Pacific Ocean was named after was named by Ferdinand Magellan in 1519. County seat is South Bend, which is home to a lovely courthouse on the hill overlooking town. And South Bend is named for a bend in the Willapa River. The county was created back in February 1851 when this was still Oregon Territory. It's one of the earliest counties in what's now Washington State. It was carved from the giant Lewis County, kind of the mother of all counties here. I think Chinook was the first county seat, and then Oysterville. South Bend stole it away in dramatic fashion in 1893. That would take hours to explain that yeah. story. Well, I'm sure you'll come up with that. Yeah, later. and uh, now Pierce County's named for. Pre- I'm going out of order here, alpha, but not alphabetically, okay. in case you're paying attention here at home. Um, Pierce County's named for President Franklin Pierce, who was president elect when that county was carved from Thurston County in December 1852, also a pretty old county. The county seat is Tacoma, also known as Commencement City, for Commencement Bay, where the 1841 Wilkes survey commenced. And Tacoma is an indigenous word and alternate pronunciation of Tahoma, the once and perhaps future name of Mount Rainier. Now, Ponderay County, okay, by my estimation, it's one of the two most mispronounced county names in the Evergreen State, the other being Wakayakum. Mm-hmm. And Ponderay is up in the far northeast corner, right? It was carved from Stevens County in March 1911 and is the youngest county in the state. The county seat is Newport, which is named for its role on the steamboat route there on the Ponderay River. Now, Ponderay is a variation of the French phrase for hangs on the ear, believed to be descriptive of ornamentation worn by indigenous people. The county name is actually two words, P-E-N-D and then O-R-E-I-L-L-E. It's not said the way it looks, right? And about that pronunciation, I decided to make some calls to ask some local experts about how badly and how often Ponderay gets mangled by outsiders, you know, people coming into the home turf there. So we're going to hear from three people. We're going to hear from Celine Thomas at the library. Lynette King at the Visitor Center, and Crystal Ziski, who's clerk of the board for the county. So our county is Ponderay, but we hear uh, Penda Oriel a lot. That's the only one I've ever heard on the mispronunciation is Penda Oriel, because that's the way it's spelled. I think the most typical pronunciation is Pond Oriel. I would thought it would be, would thought it would be Penda Oriel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yeah, and Oriel. It's hard for me to mispronounce it. I've been here for so long. <laughs> so I also asked Celine Thomas at the Newport Library if locals fixate on the pronunciation as much as I do. They probably read too much into it. We're pretty we're pretty lowbrow and we're pretty chill out here. Um, if they mispronounce it, we just take the 15 seconds to correct them and move on most of the time. So I, I just fixate on it too much, of course. Now, right next door in Idaho, there's a town on Lake Ponderay called Ponderay, but spelled phonetically P-O-N-D-E-R-A-Y. Now, Eric Brubaker is the Parks and Community Development Director there. He said that phonetic spelling was created by the railroad 100 years ago as a strategic move when they were in competition with another town site. Now, if two spellings of Ponderay weren't enough, Eric told me there's a nonprofit working to create a trail along the lake. The group has found a way to complicate things even more. Friends of the Ponderay Bay Trail is a nonprofit, and that spells it the old way with the lowercase d apostrophe. Oh, so the old, old way, like the original. The old, old way. It's also a pain. So there's three spellings. (laughs) So there's three spellings. You thought there was two. (laughs) So, yeah, there's that, not to go into too much detail, but P-E-N-D, then D apostrophe, O-R-E-I-L-L-E. It's it's very complicated when they're applying for a grant for the trail. Does that make any sense in French? 
I think it actually makes more sense because the D is the hangs on the ear part. Pondere, the way it's spelled for the county name, is just hangs ear without the, uh, what would that be, preposition? The D is prepositional, I believe. I'm not an expert on French or really anything, really, but... Anyway, so that's that's our latest installment. Coming up next, we're going to have San Juan, Skagit, and of course, everyone's favorite, Skamania. Skagit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If you missed any part of this, it's posted at MyNotHost.com. And um, do you, uh, do we have a test at the end of the term here or? It will all be on the midterm, of course. Oh, I'm ready. 648 Seattle's Morning News. Today is, of course, January 6th, two years since the attack on the Capitol. More than 900 people have now been charged with crimes as a result of that, and that list grows. Today, Cairo News Radio's Catherine Stone is going to give us a list of those who were from Washington State. Kate? Thank you. Uh, I believe the memories of January 6th still burned in, in the minds of many. That's the scene from two years ago. And Washington Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal was actually there. She called it a collective trauma as she waited out the violence in the Capitol building. I mean, I remember the shot ringing out in the in the gallery. I remember the pounding of the insurrectionists on the doors of the gallery where I was trapped. It's obviously a monumental event in U.S. history. And I've been looking at some of the arrests and prosecutions of state residents here in Washington state. I've counted 21 people arrested and charged so far, and that's not counting the six Seattle police officers who are allegedly present. The first person from our state was arrested actually just a day after the attack. Mark Leffingwell of Seattle was arrested January 7th in Washington, D.C. He allegedly punched a Capitol police officer in the chest and on his helmet while police attempted to create a barrier to prevent rioters from entering the Capitol building. That's according to those charging documents. And then Perhaps the most high-profile arrest in our state was Ethan Nordine of Auburn. A lot of people remember him. He was a leader of the Proud Boys, and court documents indicate he was heavily involved in the planning of the violence on January 6th. And according to House Committee investigating the riot, Proud Boys members were among the first to identify and attack a security soft spot on Capitol grounds. So Nordine was actually arrested February 3rd, almost a month after the attack, but he was arrested here in Washington. And neighbors were awoken in the middle of the night by what they they said it was a flashbang. They described that scene to Cairo 7 TV when it happened. We were woken to a couple of bo- a boom. My son is up in his room and he's like, oh my God. And he looks out and we heard, we heard you know, Ethan, Ethan Nordine is the FBI. So despite him being arrested in February of 2021, he's actually he was just indicted on new sedition charges last June and testimony in his trial actually began this week. So if he's convicted on all the charges he faces, he faces about 40 years in prison. Wow. Um, and also charged uh, Taylor Jonatakis of Kitsap County uh, with eight federal crimes. These are just the most high-profile cases that we covered. Um, but unlike Nordine, Jonatakis made it clear he's not a member or a supporter of a white supremacist or a hate group. Um, so that's kind of the interesting thing. There's over a dozen people, uh, other people from the state that have been indicted. As I mentioned, there's a list of 21 so far, but not all of them were white supremacists or members of hate groups or some of them were just individuals acting on anti-government 
ideals. Um, there's really kind of a, across the board ideologies, really. Um, and so there's no one reason they went there. I mean, I, we've heard some people who it ranges all from I wanted to burn it down to I have no idea what came over me. So was there any common theme to what how people explain their actions? Not really. I mean. Nordine is obviously being charged with sedition. He he was clearly part of a group that was trying to overthrow the government. But if you look at like the the case of Devlin Thompson of Puyallup, uh, he he pleaded guilty in August 2021 to assaulting a police officer with a metal baton. But he actually wrote an apology letter later to Capitol police officers saying, "I'm sorry for my actions." You know. I, I believe there were a lot of people who went there to protest the election because they didn't like how it ended, and they ended up just caught up in the moment and were not necessarily in trying to overthrow the government. And in your research in finding these individuals, and 21 from Washington State out of 950, they're pretty tight-lipped. You tried to talk to prosecutors, tried to talk to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Why is it that they're not talking on these individuals, is it because they have more out there that they're still watching? That's exactly it. Ah. Uh, this is not over. Um, two Puyallup residents were just charged last month uh, That's right. the, with the unsealed documents, a couple from Puyallup. Uh, those crimes are misdemeanors, but the FBI has said this is not over. They have more than 950 federal defendants, but they believe as many as 2,000 could have been involved in the riots. Mm. And they say that the FBI said in a statement this week, they remain committed to identifying, investigating, and prosecuting those responsible. So the U.S. attorney basically said to me, I cannot say anything on this because I there may be more charges coming. So there are some people in this area who think that no one noticed but may get a knock on the door anyway? I will say this. Every single person who has been charged in the January 6th riots so far has gotten convicted. So if there are people in this area who participated, there is a very good chance they will be convicted on any charges they may face. Hmm. News Radio's Catherine Stone. Thank you, Kate. Seattle's Morning News, Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan joining us, the moderator of CBS's Face the Nation, Margaret Brennan. So any new developments or concessions? Has Kevin McCarthy agreed to sit in a dunk tank? I mean, what does he have to do now? Well, uh, the list of concessions, um, I mean, I mean, we're joking here, but it really is quite long. Um, and it is empowering that conservative wing, the Freedom Caucus of his party, that has been that group of holdouts. And, and while we are hearing, yes, there's more paper circulating with a possible, you know, break in the fever and a potential deal on the horizon. We won't really know until Congress reconvenes at noon today. The, the long and short of it is that Kevin McCarthy is carving out a weakened speakership for himself should he even win the seat and win that uh, key number of 218 or a majority. So we will wa- wait and see. But uh, the more conservative members of the right are being empowered here um, because they are arguing that they won't hand over their votes till they get uh, things like key positions on important committees like the Rules Committee. Now, isn't isn't there a, a practical deadline here? Because at some point they have to raise the debt limit, don't they? 
Well, I mean, having lawmakers sworn in, yeah, it's pretty important to the process of governing on many, many fronts. I mean, technically, Congress needs to declare war should there be, you know, a scenario like that. Uh, they need to actually be sworn in to pass any legislation. Uh, in terms of that date on the calendar, that, that, that can has been kicked down to June. So I guess there's some pending deadlines there. But uh, this is something that uh, Kevin McCarthy has says he wants to really push through the weekend to try to resolve in the near term. Um, he's at this point showing no signs of, of stepping aside and having somebody else try to win the speakership. Well, in the past, when Congress has been paralyzed, presidents began, uh, you know, issuing executive orders. Could Biden do that? Sure. Um, and you see, for example, with the border announcements and the uh, immigration announcements that were just unveiled by the Homeland Security Secretary yesterday, that there are actions the executive can take. However, acts, actions taken by the executive expire with that executive. They are not laws. If you actually want them to change the system, you have to work with Congress. That's how the system was designed. So when President Biden, for example, goes on Sunday to the border, finally, something he was criticized heavily for not doing earlier in his term, um, Republicans really said he, he failed to uh, take the issue on. Well, he's going there on Sunday and he's going to stand on that border before he goes to Mexico and he's going to turn back to Congress and say, I need to pass laws and I need you to, you know, actually get sworn in and start doing your jobs to, to, to do it, to fix the crisis. But that's interesting. But in, in the meantime, essentially, he can make whatever policy he wants. And it doesn't, okay, it might not last well, there, more than two years, but he well, can do it now. And limits on the power of the executive. That, you know, that, that, that's the way the system is designed. Sure, he can, he can change regulations. He can issue orders. Um, but there are limits on that power. I mean, the Congress is supposed to be a co-equal branch of government. They don't work for him. They work for you and I, right? And so um, there is a certain amount of, of a limit there. there. There's real sand torn, thrown into the gears of uh, governing um, when part of Congress isn't even in existence, right? Like these these yeah. lawmakers aren't even technically congressmen. They're, they're congressmen-elect and congresswomen-elect. Let's talk about that border policy. What is that designed to do? How does that discourage what's been going on at the border? Well, so this is, um, as the administration likes to say, a hemispheric-wide crisis, meaning this is something that is really hitting all of um, the Western Hemisphere because of this migration crisis out of countries that are uh, really falling apart, like Venezuela, like Haiti. Cuba has a massive crisis. Nicaragua. So there is this record flood of people leaving those countries and record numbers crossing. But um, what these new policies will do is uh, allow the administration to expel those who have been able to come into the country and claim asylum um, in a way that uh, the administration can now push them back across the border to Mexico. 30,000 a month was the number that Mexico agreed to take in from those countries I just listed off who are hard to uh, send people back to their country of origin. I mean, Haiti is just a, a disaster zone right now. Um, and so when Haitians cross the border, the Biden administration can't send them back to Haiti. So Mexico has agreed short term to 30,000 a month from all those countries, Venezuela, Haiti, Nicaragua. So this is it, this is really like staunching the bleeding. And what the administration is arguing is in addition to dealing with the hemorrhage in it, 
immediate sense where you have mayors and governors who are asking for more aid to come to, you know, just humanitarian purposes, the laws themselves actually need to be rewritten in terms of, of, of migration. But uh, President Biden is going to Mexico next week, and we'll be talking about this with their president. Okay, you're going to be talking with Oksana Makarova, Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S. on Face the Nation. Uh are there any deals brewing? I mean, you, you, we're, we're sending more fighting vehicles, Bradley fighting vehicles to Ukraine. Uh, they launched an attack uh, against uh, Russian soldiers. Do you see any movement? Well, President Biden announced yesterday Bradley fighting vehicles, that the Germans are also sending similar systems, that there are more Patriot systems going to, to help shoot down incoming uh, missiles. You had that incredible strike that killed hundreds of Russians carried out by Ukraine was using U.S. equipment, HIMARS, that system. So you have more heavy um, weapons being taken from U.S. stockpiles and pledged to Ukraine. Expect more announcements today, the details of that. It's an incredibly large package, I believe the largest to date, about $2 billion or more. Um, and you have that congressional package at the end of the year that was uh, pushed through by the, by the former speaker, um, Nancy Pelosi. So this is a key moment for Ukraine. The reason that the West is arming them to the teeth uh, right now is because they believe the next six months are going to be decisive in terms of determining uh, the state of the battlefield, which ultimately determines the state of the negotiating table, should Vladimir Putin decide uh, to sit down and talk. He's shown no signs so far. Oh, so there is nothing new there. There, He seems as intransigent as ever, or have there been rumblings that there is a face-saving way out? There is no, certainly not from my sources, have I heard that there is any uh, reason to hope that there is a face-saving way out at present. And that is why the decision was made to double down on, you know, create facts on the ground, change the terms on the ground so that um, you can get to a, a negotiation. In the short term, Vladimir Putin made an announcement that he had hoped for temporary ceasefire this weekend, which is Orthodox Christmas. The Ukrainians scoffed at that because on December 25th and January 1st, uh, there was no ceasefire um, from the Russians and they were bombing Ukraine uh, heavily. The moderator of CBS's Face the Nation, Margaret Brennan. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. Ida Jugai of Boston, Massachusetts, received the best gift ever back in 1999, a guardian angel in the skies above America. But first, how it began. Civil war was raging in Yugoslavia. CBS's Steve Hartman takes the story from here. Ida's parents put their 11-year-old daughter and her sister on a plane to the U.S. by themselves. Ida vividly remembers the fear, but remembers just as well the comforting stranger seated next to her, an American. I remember how kind she was to us, you know, treating us like her family. So it was a bit of a shock, to be honest. Especially when she handed you the envelope? Yeah, I couldn't believe that somebody had so much empathy. The outside of the envelope read in part, I hope your stay in America will be a safe and happy one. Signed, a friend from the plane, Tracy. And when Ida opened it, she found a $100 bill inside. Ida and her sister moved in with a relative who didn't have too much more than they did. So that $100 bill fed the family for three months. And Ida says it continues to feed her soul to this very day. That's why I actually kept Tracy's letter because uh, it's a reminder to me that people are good. It has also been a main driver in her life. 
Ida owns two businesses that promote environmental and social justice. The reason why I do what I do is because of Tracy. Every decision that I made had to do with paying it forward. I was wondering if you can help me find Tracy. A few years ago, Ida put word out on social media, hoping to find the woman who gave her life direction. She spent years searching, until not long ago, when her message finally got through to Tracy Peck of Blaine, Minnesota. (laughs) Tracy, Ida, and her sister Vanya reunited last weekend. We just stood there and hugged and cried, and I just felt such a deep love for them. I can't wait to come to your wedding. Tracy Peck gave away $100 to total strangers. But she says the gift she has gotten in return is far more precious. They've taught me the slightest thing that you can do for someone. You don't realize what impact that's going to have on their life. We have no idea. But if you're lucky, maybe someday you will. Seven forty-seven, Seattle's morning news, and here he is from the G and Ursula show. G Scott. Good morning, bro. I was listening to sports radio yesterday. How'd that feel? Uh, it's a little strange for me. I know, but uh, basically, what I heard is that even if you believe in uh, the multiverse, there is no universe in which Detroit loses to Green Bay. Is that correct? Uh, that is not correct. Now, I know that. It is upsetting for that game to just play out uh, after the Seahawks. So let me set the stage for you. The Seahawks have the Rams coming into town on Sunday. The Seahawks need to win that game in order to have a chance for the playoffs. Let's say the Seahawks do win. If and when the Seahawks win, that means the Detroit Lions are automatically eliminated. Pack your bags, wife, mama, cousin them, all of y'all going home. You're not going to the playoffs. They still have to play the game against the Green Bay Packers. Now, most of us say that's not fair, which I agree. I'm with you. However... It is the Detroit Lions against the Green Bay Packers. And if you know anything about that division, the division with the Bears, the Green Bay Packers, the Detroit Lions, and the Minnesota Vikings, you know one thing. They hate each other. Mm. There's always something to play for. The Detroit Lions, who are being coached by their new head coach, his Dan Campbell. By the way, look him up. He's one of my favorites right now. I absolutely love the Detroit Lions coach. That team is playing for a lot. So they're going into Lambeau Field on Sunday night after the Seahawks win. Everybody listening, you need to become a Detroit Lions fan. So if you got some Detroit Lion draws, wear them. You feel me? (laughs) You need to be a Detroit Lion fan. Uh, Also, let's be real. How easy is it? to hate Aaron Rodgers. How easy is it to root against the Green Bay Packers? Well, Sunday night, that's what you get to do. Hmm. How's he developed after he uh, split from a, what was her name, the actress? She she turned him into kind of a hippy-dippy woo-woo guy. It's funny you say that. I haven't had time. Look it up right now. 
It just came out. He got a new boo. Oh. Yes. I know we like to blame wins and losses on the boo. No, he has so a, just, he has a 20. A look it up. If you guys are listening, if you, you get handy to your computer, yeah. he has a 26-year-old on, new Aaron. boo. Uh, according, I think she is the daughter of one of the Milwaukee Bucks oh. owners she right looks, now. She's 26. Here's the thing that I like. the Bucks owner. You're yeah. right. Yeah. Mallory at, Edens? Yeah. Got a new boo. 13 years younger. There's, you can Google Aaron. Rogers' new boo, and it comes up. Here's the beautiful thing. Yeah. I was thinking about that, and I, she's 13 years younger, but I was looking at her, right? I was like, you know what? It makes sense. I was looking at her. Beautiful gal. She doesn't look like she wants any Louis Vuitton. She doesn't want any red bottoms. She doesn't want any Gucci or anything like that. You give her a shy tea, some lettuce, and a smoothie, and she looks like she's good to go. <laughs> so maybe he's going to have a spark in his step on the field. Yeah. We're going to hope not. But, so, but the fact that it kind of makes me nervous mm-hmm. that this came out two days before they're getting ready to play a real big game. Why? I don't know. Do you do you think men get energized when they first get into that new relationship? Yes. There you go, oh, man. Okay. That's what I'm I saying. I thought you meant the headlines might distract him no. from the game, which is a good thing. But you think this is going to give him a pep in his step. Right. Mm-hmm. Dave Ross, 40, 50-something years ago when you got you a new boo. How oh, excited yeah. were you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Over the moon. <laughs> Anybody of the opposite sex would pay attention to me. It was a big deal. Aw. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, did you write, did you, uh, Dave, <laughs> did you what? write her letters? What did you do? What? To woo her? Patty. Uh, well, I, well, yeah. Once, well, I mean, once she went off to graduate school, yeah, we wrote letters, we made phone calls. Yeah. Yeah. Did you talk to her every night? And I couldn't afford it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Back, 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 back then, AT&T was charging. Oh, <laughs> my phone bill was like $200 a month just for long distance calls. Aww, and that was not cutie. calling every night. Yeah. So uh, I, you're asking me to try to predict how this will affect Aaron Rodgers, and I, I really can't say. I mean, if if our, if our job is to make sure he loses, you've got to hope that it distracts him, right? Yeah, that's right. It can also distract you. You can also be thinking about your boo and I mean, not playing the I game. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but we, when you get in that new relationship and you go to work, sometimes you're doing your job better. To impress mm-hmm. them. You, right? Mm-hmm. You, yeah. you, you, mm-hmm. you smell better. That's possible. You look better. So does anybody in the Hawks have a new girlfriend? That will, uh... <laughs> Gino? How's Gino? Does Gino have a girlfriend or a wife? I don't know. Is he attached? I don't know. You don't know. Mm-mm. I don't know either. That's Let me look a, it up. Let me Google it. Look, look it up. Gino? Uh, well, now, as far as uh, the Seahawks, I want to get back to that, though, because the Seahawks need to win this game. Yes. And here's what's scary. It's the Rams coming into town. So who are the Rams? Well, the Rams are the team of Bobby Wagner. Yes, Bobby Wagner is going to be in town. Of course, there's not going to be any booing. People are going to be excited to see Bobby Wagner, and that's going to happen. But there's something about a Bobby Wagner and Rams team. You guys saw the last game. They really played the Seahawks really tough, uh, almost winning that game. Seahawks prevailed and won the game. But, you know, they're going to come in town. Even though the Rams have lost 11 games this year, no other Super Bowl team the next year has lost 11 games like the Rams have just mm-hmm. done. If they lose 12 games, that'll be even better. But uh, yeah, so the Rams come to town. The Seahawks need to win that. If you're going to be at the game, great. If you're going to be watching the game, great. Seahawks have to win or they go home. You and they it? will win by a score of... Well, what do you think the first score is going to be? 31. 31. <laughs> 31 to... <laughs> 17. Okay. 17. You always say 17. You want to know the T on Geno Smith's wife? Mm. He's married. 
I didn't know that. Haley Eastham, who was his college love. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, love I didn't. That I didn't know. How, how did we? How did I not know? I don't, I, that surprises me. But that good old G- Google. Geno yeah. Smith keeping his business tight. I like that. You, you've him. been married for a lot of years. How many years you been married, Dave? Oh, we're coming up on our fiftieth. That's our Fiftieth. Yeah. Yeah. This year. Better give her a long-distance yeah. phone call. <laughs> yeah. it, it was your voice that wooed her. I'm sure. And, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, no question about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's the voice. And the effort to clean up and repair the damage caused by flooding in Seattle's South Park neighborhood continues this morning. Kyra News Radio's Sam Campbell joins us live. Sam. Right around the holidays, this storm surge combined with the king tides and flooded a number of areas around the Puget Sound. But scenes from the South Park neighborhood showed streets underwater, people trying to wade or bicycle through them. Seattle Times reported one resident with asthma couldn't breathe after mold invaded their home. Now a team of of volunteers made up of veterans and former first responders is here in South Park to rake up the muck and remove debris from the neighborhood and from the damaged homes. Over the weekend, they'll be working alongside personnel from the city. So I'm out here to talk and walk with them as they work to repair the damage. But I'm also hearing from the people who live here, and they tell me they feel like South Park is always forgotten, left behind when it comes to policy agendas and diverting enough resources to make sure this doesn't happen again. What I'd like to know from the city is what is their long-term plan to deal with 100-year events for 100-year flooding events, a more sustainable approach versus a patchwork reactionary approach. So just after the flooding, Seattle Public Utilities came out and pointed the finger at climate change, saying the rising sea levels and increased rain exacerbated the problem. But to be fair to the city, the utility is building a pump station in the neighborhood to alleviate future flooding from the Duwamish River. That and some new stormwater drainage systems should be finished next year. But with more king tides expected later in the month, I've asked the city a number of questions still lingering on the mind of many here. Number one, how many homes were flooded or damaged by the flooding between Christmas and New Year's, and given the reports of families being placed in hotels paid for by the city, how many families was that? And is this still the case? When does that deadline expire for when the city will stop paying? What else is being done for the families whose homes and apartments have been damaged? Are they being compensated? Uh, Are the landlords being compensated? And in what way? And, And with more king tides expected, what's the risk to the neighborhood again in the future? Reporting live in South Park, Sam Campbell, Cairo News Radio. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.